0: Friends, hear the word of God from the Gospel of Matthew. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. In the highest heaven, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, the word of the Lord. We've been walking on the way of Jesus over the season of Lent, and this is the last Sunday of Lent, so it is uh, focusing on the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, We started off this series way back uh, at the beginning of Lent with looking at Jesus' open to his ministry, his baptism, and then immediate temptation, and we saw that God chose a very weird way to enter Jesus into a public ministry, and yet... That very weird way that God chose for Jesus to do that was a way of him identifying not just with the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, but showing that Jesus was going to be like all the rest of humanity, that he was going to be associating with all of humanity, all of God's creation, so that his work would apply to more than just the Jews. It would apply to all of us who are here today, Gentiles as well. Then we looked and we saw the next week uh, the healing ministry of Jesus. And we looked at a story where Jesus is on his way to heal a daughter of a ruler of a synagogue. And while he's on his way, he accidentally kind of heals a woman who had been bleeding for many years, an outcast, somebody who the society would have seen as unclean, and she would have been kind of kept separate from everybody else. So we saw that Jesus didn't differentiate between his ministry to those who were in prominent positions or to those who were in less prominent or even outcast-like positions that he ministered to all who came to him and felt they had a need for his healing, his grace, his teaching. And we looked at the fact that Jesus' central message of his teaching and his ministry was the kingdom of God, that he was announcing and he was bringing forth the kingdom of God, the rule of God in a new way on this earth. And that in that, when he pronounced the kingdom of God, that Jesus himself was bringing forth uh, a new way to do things, that Jesus was showing us that the kingdom of power, of domination, of might, of destruction was not going to be the way that God was going to bring about his kingdom, but one of humility, one of grace, one of love, one of uh, accepting in and inviting into the table all members of the human race. Then we saw after that that Jesus calms the storms that are in our lives. We saw a physical example of it. When Jesus calms a storm, the disciples are in with him on a boat. And he calms those down. But only in the Old Testament, God can calm the wind and the waves. Only God can calm down the wind and the waves. And yet Jesus, with his voice, just calms those those winds and that wave's Down, And so it's showing his divinity, his power to have sovereignty and control over even the wildest forces of nature that seem incomprehensible to humanity. And so Jesus shows us that. Last week, we looked how Jesus ministered to the outcast, to the poor, and to sinners. How he intentionally had meals with and ate with and accepted into his presence those which the righteous of his day did not accept and who cast it out. We we asked ourselves the question, are we the type of people who minister to everyone outside of these walls and inside of these walls, no matter their status, no matter what they look like or what they smell like or how they act, that we care for and love all members of humanity, recognizing that they're built, they're made in the image of God, and we are to give them that kind of dignity. This final week that we come to is the most significant part of all of Jesus's ministry, or at least the four gospel writers thought it was the most significant part because of Jesus' three years in public ministry, three years. So do the math real quick. 365 times three equals? <laughs> over 1,000, right? Over a thousand years or a thousand days that Jesus did ministry in seven days. Seven days takes up in the Gospel of Matthew about 30% of the content that Matthew records. Seven days out of a thousand takes up about 30% of what Matthew records. Mark, it's even more. 40%. 40% happens in just those seven days, about, just about. Luke is only 20%. But Luke has an obsession about the week right before the final week of Jesus' life. So if you extend it to the 14 days of uh, the end of Jesus' ministry, it actually goes up to 67 percent of Luke's content is in those last 14 days. And in John, uh, probably the heaviest of all, focusing on those last seven days, is 47 percent of his gospel, almost half of all of his writing about Jesus' three years of ministry is focused on the last seven days. So the gospel writers saw these last seven days as something incredibly significant to record in great detail so that the world would have their reflections, their eyewitness accounts, their memories of what they experienced in those final days of Jesus' life on this earth. And they tell us an incredible story. So this week we start... With Palm Sunday, and right before Palm Sunday, we mentioned last week that Jesus was in Jericho, and there's this tax collector Zacchaeus who was short and he couldn't see over the crowd, so he went and climbed a tree. Well, that happens right before the seven days, and so Jesus is in Jericho. He he. Uh, heals blind Bartimaeus in Jericho at the same time, and he is getting ready for the Passover, so he knows he's going to have to head into Jerusalem to celebrate this incredible celebration of Israel, the Passover that they do every year, a seven-day celebration, and he knew he was going to have to go in, so he heads from Jericho over to Jerusalem, and he kind of goes through. and If you if you've been to Israel before, um, you guys are probably sick of me hearing hearing me talk about it because I just went uh, in January, and it was an incredible experience. But one of the most incredible things is getting a sense of the scale, getting a sense of how far things are apart, and being able to walk in the landscape. And so I could picture in my mind the mountains that he would have walked through from Jericho and he would have followed along the wadi kilt, which the wadi is just a, a valley that a river will flow through whenever there's the flood seasons. And so he would have kind of walked a route, a road that kind of followed that same valley through the Judean hillsides and he would have come to Bethany. Now, why did he go to Bethany? Does anybody know? What's in Bethany? Bethany. That's right. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He stops at his favorite people in the world's house, right? He loves Lazarus. He loves Mary and Martha. And so he stops there at their house and he rests there overnight before he takes the final trek to the Mount of Olives, which Bethany is just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And he's going to take the final trek over that mountain and he's going to come into the city. This is probably where he sent Uh, the disciples ahead, Bethphage is just not very far from there. So he sends them ahead the next day to get the the donkey and bring the donkey back. But he stops there before he heads over. Then he comes and he heads over the Mount of Olives. I took this picture from the top of the Mount of Olives. So this is what the Mount of Olives looks like today. If you're wondering what all of that concrete is, those those are tombs. Those are tombs of some of the most prominent Jewish figures from the last few centuries. There's a lot more tombs there in in that mountainside. Pretty much the entire Mount of Olives is covered with graves. Uh, And it's because the Jews believe, because of prophecy in the Old Testament, that the Messiah was going to come from the east and was going to enter in to the temple through the eastern gate, which if you could see there, that's the eastern wall of the old city. And in the far kind of top right side, there's like a big kind of tower in the middle of the wall. That's the eastern gate. They would call that the golden gate or the beautiful gate. Sometimes it was called in the Old or in the New Testament. And so they knew that the Messiah was going to come from Over that hillside. And since they believed, they believed that the coming of the Messiah was going to usher in the end of time and that the resurrection of the dead was going to happen there, they believed that the Mount of Olives was going to split open and the graves were all going to come open and the dead would rise from their graves first from the Mount of Olives and enter with the Messiah into the temple through the Eastern Gate. They believed that that's what was going to happen. So they began to bury their most prominent leaders in that spot so that they would get to be resurrected with the Messiah first, okay? And then you would go down into the Kidron Valley, which you could see there, that's the green that's kind of along there, and you would climb uh, a much more modest hill. That hill that's there today is a little bit steeper and bigger because the Romans, after they sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, they kind of buried the temple mount. They came and brought dirt in and they buried it all up. And so that temple mount is a little bit higher up. That dirt on the outside, that wall would have been much taller and the gate would have been much lower. In fact, I got a picture of what that looks like here. This is a model that's in the uh, Jerusalem Museum or in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem uh, of what Jerusalem probably looked like and the temple mount looked like in the first century And there's the beautiful gate. There's the eastern gate. You can see it's not a double gate, which you'll see later in a picture that it looked now. It's a double gate. Uh, It was much lower down. And so that's likely where Jesus was heading when he was coming over the Mount of Olives to head into the Temple Mount, right in front of the temple. Now, by the way, this was not a public entrance into the temple, this is not something that people would use on a regular basis to come into the temple. This was a place that usually the priests would use to come in and out, especially on Passover and on Yom Kippur, to bring the sacrifices of God in and out to the temple. Okay, so this is a place that the priest would use. So Jesus, if he used this as his entrance in, and I think he did, he was making a very provocative statement, Right? Because he was not using a public gate to come in. He was using the gate that priests would use or the Messiah was supposed to use in entering into the the temple. Pretty provocative everything Jesus does in this last week, by the way. A lot of the rest of his ministry, there's some provocation in the rest of his ministry. In this last week, there's a tremendous amount of provocation that he gives. He is provoking them to put him on a cross, really, by a lot of the stuff he does. On the top of the Mount of Olives there's this church now. And it's it's the place where they commemorate that as Jesus comes in to Jerusalem and he can now see Jerusalem, he stops and he weeps for Jerusalem. He weeps for Jerusalem because here's the city where he has done a tremendous amount of ministry. They've been hearing about the things he's been doing everywhere else. They've been seeing the signs that he is the chosen one of God who has been sent to usher in God's kingdom. And yet, they haven't accepted him. They've rejected him. And of course, Jesus knows what's going to happen in the next seven days. And so he knows that Jerusalem is going to continue to reject him. And he knows even further in the future because he testifies to it in this week that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he was predicting what would happen in 70 AD. So he's weeping for Jerusalem and for the fact that they are, they are right there in front of the Messiah. And they have every opportunity to recognize him for who he is. And yet they miss it. They miss it. I want to ask us who think and call ourselves the people of the way of Christ... And if you call yourself a Christian, that's what you're saying. Is Jesus right there before you? And yet you've missed it. Sometimes when I evaluate my own life, I can't help but think I've missed so much that I I say I believe, I act like I believe, but in reality, deep in my heart and in ways that I act when when nobody else is looking or in my own thoughts are deeply unchristian. They're deeply not the ways of Christ. And so is Jesus so close to me and yet, yet has he wept for me because I haven't truly accepted him as Lord over every aspect of my life like Jerusalem in his day. And I think this spot, this place, and the reminder of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as he enters in for his final week should be a reminder to us to reevaluate our lives. Where are we missing it? Where have we rejected Jesus as our king, as our Messiah, as our savior, and chosen our own ways, or chosen the ways of the world instead? Instead, and Jesus continues down and he ends up going through kind of the garden of Gethsemane, which we know he's going to end up back in the garden on Thursday night praying just before he's betrayed. And so I took this picture from the garden, looking right over the Kidron Valley, and that is the Eastern Gate. Now the Eastern Gate was rebuilt sometime probably in the 6th century by a Roman uh, emperor and that's probably fairly similar to how it was rebuilt in the 6th century, but it was rebuilt later by Muslims as well. And then in the 16th century, uh, Suleiman, the uh, emperor of the Ottoman Empire, walled it off and covered over the gate so that you could not enter in through the eastern gate. Now, there was two or three reasons why he probably did this, and they were probably all considerations that he had. First, is in Islam, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God. They do not believe that Jesus is God, but they believe that he was the promised Messiah of the Jews, and he came, and he fulfilled, and he prophesied, and he taught, and he did all that God intended for him to do. So they believed, and Suleiman would have believed, there's no need to even have this eastern gate here. The Messiah already came, and so when he was blocking it up, he was somewhat making a statement, there's no Messiah who can return here. Because he's already come. Two, second reason, a little bit more political. The Jews would come to this gate and they would pray at this gate because they weren't allowed in the city underneath the Ottoman Empire and the rule of the empire. Uh, So they could not get to the western wall, which would have been the closest place to the Holy of Holies, which is why the Jews go there today and pray. And so they came to this eastern gate and they would pray for the restoration of Jerusalem. And so he did not want the Jews coming up to their gate every single day. And there's a tad bit of a threat that uh, we're going to block your way. You're not going to be able to come to this gate to pray anymore. But on top of that, it also is a weakness, right? You have a big open gate right in front of your temple mount where your most important mosque in all the whole area is on the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock. You can see it creeping up above the top. You don't want that open to the crusaders to come in and potentially take over, right? So he blocks it off so that there's no chance that any Christians could come and potentially try and sack Jerusalem from those gates. So multiple considerations, but he closed that gate off. Jesus goes in through that gate, I believe, and he comes into the city and the people began that are with him, his entourage, began to put their cloaks down on the road and they began to cut palm branches off of the trees. Now the palm is a a national symbol of Israel and has been for a long time. And so they're, they're showing their pride of the people of Israel by cutting those down. He's riding on a donkey because that's the tradition of David to come as a king in the line of David in peace and in humility, as a servant of God and not one of their own authority. Jesus is coming on a donkey and they're crying out, Hosanna, 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 come save us is what that means. God save us and they're yelling out son of David save us son of David save us messianic words clearly this crowd that's around him believes he is the Messiah and people begin to join in and they're all excited and you've seen it before when a crowd begins to gather people get excited and they come around and they look right and Jesus is making a big show of his entrance into the temple that Sunday before he dies. They're worshiping him. They're claiming that he is the Messiah. Now, we know the whole story. What happens just four days later, three days later? Huh? And what are the crowds shouting? Crucify him. Crucify him. Yet another moment on this beginning of the Holy Week that as we reflect on Jesus' last week should call us to question ourselves. I've preached in the past a lot on this duality, that the crowds are worshiping him, calling out to him, asking for salvation, but then as soon as he doesn't come in the way that they expect him as a conquering king who's going to overthrow Rome and is going to raise Jerusalem back up to be the kingdom that rules over all the earth, as soon as he doesn't do that, right... And he's allowed himself to be arrested by the Roman authorities. They've turned their back on him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And in fact, they make a deal with Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate. And they say, release this other guy uh, who's probably some kind of radical, violent overthrower of the Roman. He was, he was leading a revolution. And that's why he was arrested. We have some symbols of the fact that that other guy who they were crying for to be released was more like the Messiah that the crowds believed was going to come in a violent threat to overthrow their enemies. And so they sacrificed Jesus to get what they want. How many of us in our own lives do the same thing? Claiming to be the people of the way, claiming to be Christians who follow after Christ, shouting on Sunday mornings, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then we're going to leave here and someone's going to cut us off and we're going to flip them off. Okay, maybe I'm only speaking for me. (laughs) Or we're going to curse them in our heart. How dare you drive like that and get in my way, right? May not actually physically be flipping them off, but in your heart, you're thinking it. How many of us praise him with our lips in here and then deny him minutes later when we leave from this building with the way we live towards others around us? If we were the people of the way, if we were the people crying out, Hosanna, save us, then we would see all people in the same way Jesus did and we would be asking for Jesus to save them too. Last thing we're going to look at is the Monday after Jesus comes into the temple, he actually leaves. He goes back out and he comes back each day doing something more and more provocative each day. But in Monday, we're going to look at this. He comes back in and three of our gospels record that he cleanses the temple. That's what our little headers say. But what he did is when he came into the temple and he saw as all the people were migrating up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's up on a mountain, they were going up from all the other places to Jerusalem to worship during Passover. They were bringing with them whatever local money they were using in their markets back at home. But the temple wouldn't accept that money. And instead, they had a whole market business of people who were exchanging those other dollars and and cents and whatever else into the shekel temple, the money of the temple. The only money the temple would accept so that they could go then and buy the right kind of animals to offer as sacrifices to God. Now, by the way, sometimes they were going around and they were selling a pigeon and then the person would go up to the priest and give the the pigeon to the priest. And there's some accounts that the priest would just turn around and give it right back to the people selling it so they could make double dollar on that dove. Corruption. Corruption that was manipulating and oppressing the most vulnerable of the people of the time. And Jesus looked at that and he said, no, not in my father's house. And so he weaves a a braid and he begins to whip those money changers and turn over their tables and drives them out of the temple. And he quotes an Old Testament verse that my house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. So it's not just the corruption of the oppression of the poor. It's the fact that there's this whole system set up that is keeping people from being able to come in and worship God in his temple. Now, if you haven't caught on yet, there's a conviction here for us. What things have we put in the way from people being able to come in here and use this place as a place of worship for God. If, if somebody comes in here and looks around and they get judged because they're wearing jeans and sneakers, are they going to come back? Probably not. If they sit in a pew and they don't know that it's your pew, and you come and you see them and you say, <clears throat> uh, Now, honey, you might be new here, but that's my seat. Scoot over. Do you think they're going to come back? Are we placing judgments on people who don't even know Jesus yet for them to be righteous and perfect in the way that we think they should be righteous and perfect so that they come through those doors clean and holy and ready to worship God? Or are we welcoming to everyone without judgment offering them grace and mercy for their brokenness so that they might find wholeness in the one true king. If Jesus came here, who would he be whipping and what tables would he be flipping over? Because we are keeping people from worshiping him in our own lives. A challenge for us to think if we call ourselves the people of the way, We would be radically like Jesus to try and make sure that all can come to the temple and worship God. And that we would be inviting for all to come and to share with us at his table. If we were to be the people of the way. Now this service is the beginning of multiple services. We've got more to go this week, Thursday, Uh, We're going to have another service celebrating what happens on that night where he eats with his disciples on Maundy Thursday. And we're going to have the actors up here around our table, and they're going to be acting out the scenes of that. We're going to have a hand-washing. Don't worry, we're not going to do a foot-washing, because we know that'll keep a lot of you from coming. Uh, We're going to do a hand-washing like we did a couple years ago. We're going to do communion. And so come back Thursday for the second part of this service. We're not going to have a benediction Uh, At the end of this, we're going to recess together after we listen to a reflection, and then we sing together a hymn, and we're going to recess together out, uh, and then we're going to come back on Thursday. And then Friday... We're going to come back on Friday and we're going to have, like last year, live actors acting out Christ's last moments in the last night of his life before he is crucified in a live action uh, Tenebrae service. And the, the service gets darker and darker. It's one of my favorite services in the entire year because it's so deeply moving. So come back for those two. But for now, let's sit, let's reflect on the miraculous King Jesus as we listen to the Renaissance Camerata.